Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Jacob Wolke, who I came across on Twitter, actually. Uh, He's a regenerative farmer raising a variety of animal products and is working to build a fully integrated farm from pasture to plate, serving his community in New South Wales, Australia. Uh, Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast, Jacob. I I really appreciate your willingness to join me here today. Um, And I was joking with my wife, I should maybe actually say tomorrow because I'm recording here at 5 uh, 5 p.m. on a Monday, and it's actually 10 a.m., there on a Tuesday, I believe in your time. So I, I appreciate your willingness to work through the uh, the time changes, but I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jared. And I can tell you what, 10th of January, it's a beautiful day. You're going to really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's something you don't hear in Minnesota too often. <laughs> I'll tell you that. it's uh, Although it, it isn't bad, it was 36 degrees out today, so uh, Fahrenheit, so I can't complain. Um, it's not uncommon to have below zero days are well below freezing uh, at this time of year. So I can't complain. But before we get into your your farm history, I'd love if you could just start off with uh, a total overview of your business, because I was looking at your website and I was looking at your 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 Twitter trying to kind of figure out. And it's like every time I seem to think you, you, you figured out what all you have, I read something else like you've got a store, you've got a processor, you got a, all these different things. So maybe start us off with just a summary of the whole business as it sits today. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on lease land here at the moment in Albury. I've got about 300 acres uh, and they're not all adjoining. So we've got a little bit of transport between everything. Hmm. Uh, we're currently direct to market with beef, lamb, pork, chicken and eggs. Hmm. And we do a few other little sideline enterprises like honey. Uh, we've got a little market garden and orchard and and they're quite small enterprises but they nestle in and they value add you know to everything else we do which is something that i'm really passionate about stacking and valuating enterprises Uh, a couple years ago i bought myself a butchery so you know it's not an abattoir we can't slaughter but it is a boning room that we can receive the carcasses into and do our uh, breakdown and and packaging and we also offer the service for about 15 other local farmers so we you know that's interesting in itself because we bought that two years ago and we've picked mm-hmm. up a dozen plus farmers overnight who wanted who you know thought that that was something that they needed to needed done better anyway mm-hmm. uh, i've also got a what i did before i was into farming was i had a bicycle store with a seven day a week cafe off to the side of it as a supportive role i still own those businesses and that cafe's morphed into our paddock to plate experience so all of our protein vegetables fruit all go through cafe musette and you know breakfast and lunch seven days a week people can come we're using our tallow in the deep fryer Uh, and and, you know we're really trying to do that whole foods low carb low toxicity low seed oil healthy back to grandma's cooking sort of mission in there what else have we got i've just bought a portable chicken abattoir so i can process my own chickens on site because it's economically uh, very difficult, the current route that we've had to go down the last couple of years to get that enterprise moving. I've, I've been sucking it, but I've been happy to do that because I sort of wanted to build up to the scale to prove whether it was worth to get my own abattoir. Hmm. 
Uh, I breed dogs as well, dogs for the pet market. <laughs> what else? I breed humans. I've got I've got two sons and a third child on the way. <laughs> I love to, I love to throw in that. I breed I, I breed cattle, sheep, people, dogs. <laughs> <It's just laughs> love to throw it in out there. there. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Wow. Yeah. No, that's a lot. Um, and I and I want to go back and and kind of get to how you got to there, but um. You, you mentioned that you, you have these 300 acres in this area. How far are you and your businesses are all, are they all in a fairly large city and how far out from the farm is the city where you're, you're doing most of your business? Sure. So we're in Albury, New South Wales, which is a, it's a sister city to another town called Wodonga, which is, we both straddle the Murray river, which is the New South Wales, Victoria state border in our area. Mm-hmm. And with a combined population of just under a hundred thousand people at the moment, probably like 85,000, we had a good influx of people moving here from Melbourne during lockdowns sure. uh, because we were a little bit more relaxed in the metro areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, all my, all my retail businesses are in town. So the butchery, the bike shop and the cafe, but the the main farm that we're farming is 12 minutes drive from the main street of town. So a very easy, comfortable commute. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. And has your family always been in agriculture and some of these businesses, or I guess talk a little bit then about how you got to, yeah, the, the farm and, and the history in it. Sure. So the patriarch of my family would be my grandpa, my father's father, Klaus Wolke. He came on a boat to Australia when he was 20. He's 83 now, still lives in town and just celebrated his 60th wedding anniversary with my grandma, which is something as a family we're very proud about. We think that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, He came to Australia as a fitter and turner and he ended up working a bit of overtime, buying a few sows uh, and ended up being South Australia's fastest growing piggery. He was the first guy to stop feeding swill and start feeding exclusively pellets. Everyone else thought pellets were a bad idea when you could get all this free waste stream stuff. And it's so interesting to see the industry Mm -hmm. do a backstrip because backflip because he was pioneering going towards consistency, budgeting, pellets, measurability, and all this sort of stuff. And then you've got all these new little regen people trying to uh, <laughs> suck all the waste stream onto their farm and trying to you know, yeah. juggle how that works with everything going on. My grandpa ended up doing a bit of share farming with uh, butternut pumpkins and, and onions and different things. But then he eventually moved to Albury from South Australia, which is where he landed off the ship and bought a fast food chicken store called Bird's Nest Barbecue Chicken, which is closed now. But he had that for... Uh, about I think it was 20 25 years or so and that's that had a cult following in town here mm. and then he essentially retired and my family's been in retail ever since so my mm. one of the properties that I lease is actually owned by my parents it's 100 acres that's the main freehold where we have all of our intensive things like pigs and uh, broilers and my family's had that about 20 years and it's just been really a set stock open gate operation running 40 yearling steers the whole time and I, when I first had my first child I started getting really interested in organic foods and we can riff on that later if you like as to how but I started gardening a little bit and sure. thinking you know I should really improve my health because I had allergies and all sorts of issues and I've got this child now you know you're looking at this beautiful little son my eldest son's name's Otto you think I've got to you know really do the best I can with this and I started going down the rabbit hole of organic gardening and I was watching Justin Rhodes on YouTube and this mm-hmm. thumbnail popped up on the side and it's the thumbnail said something like this man buys land at $20 an acre. And he was talking about a video he did with Joel Salatin where Joel rolls out $20 an acre worth of infrastructure and doubles his productivity. And I knew it was clickbait. I'd never yeah. heard of Joel Salatin <laughs> before. I saw it. I'm like, I know this is clickbait. He's not yeah. buying land for $20 an acre, but I want to know like how that yeah. works. 
And that actually sucked me into getting into the animal uh, part of the business. So before then, we we're just doing a little bit of home gardening. Mm-hmm. And then I talked to dad about building some fences and moving the cattle that he owned at the time a little bit quicker and watching how that worked. And I just went down the rabbit hole. That was about four years ago. Okay. Wow. Well, I was just going to ask you how long ago that was because uh, you've you've come a long ways, but four years isn't that long. And and so you you have a family history in agriculture, but really you could sort of almost consider yourself you know, a startup or a first generation in a way. Not a pl- the, the the knowledge and the history we have isn't uh, applicable, I guess. Yeah. You know, my grandpa said, Jake, if your pigs ever get fleas. Go get some old sump oil from one of the mechanics in town and just pour it down their back. And, you know, this <laughs> sort of, sure. you know, the cool old the tips. Old I'm like, I might not be pouring sump oil on my animals in the paddocks, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Funny how, uh, funny how times change. That's awesome. Man, I'll tell you so... what's interesting, though, Jared, before we move in, is my grandpa came yeah. down the back of our paddock and we had a mob of about uh, 50 grower paddocks on our pasture system. So it's portable shelters, portable water, mm. they're behind hot wire. They're in a silver pasture under tree with gravity feeders. And this is only Christmas time. And he's looking at them under the trees. And he's just real quiet for about five minutes. I think when he finished up, he had about 80 sows. So it was a bit of all in sheds with little outdoor runs. So it was a bit of a going concern back then. And he turned around and he looked at me. My grandpa's actually a lifelong vegetarian, which is interesting. And he looked at me and he Hmm. said, I never knew why I didn't think to do it like this. He's like all the time we spent shoveling manure. He often talks with a bit of a wet eye about how my grandma with three children under five would be down in the south stalls at five in the morning, shoveling out the poo, battling the weather, managing the kids while he was in town working a second job to pay for the feed while they were scaling that enterprise. He's looking around going, you're not managing any manure. It doesn't stink. You know, this is beautiful. I don't know why it never occurred to me. And I think that's one of the really elegant things about these partially based models that I really love is they are. Like when you immerse in them, they do sort of seem self-evident, but they're not really. You know, we need mm-hmm. some uh, mm-hmm. leading thinkers like people you've had on your podcast, Alan Savory and, and the likes yeah. to, you yeah. know, push the paradigm a bit. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, I, I love that, first of all. That's just such a cool telling thing because I think we all, I mean, I don't know. I I, I have had conversations with my grandfather before he passed and stuff about things that I do differently or think differently or how I act differently. And you you want him to be proud and stuff. And and when they say something like that, and my grandfather said things similarly too. And just that, you know, it's it's really cool that yeah, that's a pretty good testament to what you're doing. That that you know them having done something entirely different it's awfully easy a A lot of people deal with yeah a lot of people deal with family that's constantly negative but that's a pretty rewarding thing to hear i'm sure so i'm really blessed that that. we don't have that we've got a very good family structure we've got you know three generations of family here in australia with with no divorces which i'm grateful for because it just makes functions easy you know right it it, divorces complicate lives and we're, we're a good crew and we're always cheering each other on which is you know that's that's holistic you know right that's that's part of the whole picture having it having a healthy home yeah well i'm interested in the farm but i feel like it's not often that i talk to people with as much experience as you do in the retail side it sounds like you said your family has been in retail for since your grandfather started that chicken restaurant what all is the experience that they've done and how has that you know affected your mindset towards all Well, this? before then my grandpa had delis in south australia mm-hmm. he had laundromats he's been involved in <laughs> opal mines uh, my myself and my uncles are involved in 
uh, e-commerce to the point where they've sold to uh, venture capital. Uh, you know, we, we've got a broad range of retail experience, which is one of the things I think I bring, like being such a new farmer and, and I guess being quite loud and proud and making the audacious claims I, I sometimes seem to make online. Uh, it can rub people up the wrong way that I don't have the pedigree or the experience, but I'm like, I'm on a learning journey, same as everyone else. But the thing yeah. I feel like I bring to the tables is a, is a sales-based mindset. Like I'm a salesman yeah. and and the way I handle customers and policies in my businesses, uh, I don't see discussed very often it, it, from the farming point of mind. It, people could trying to go direct to consumer. They don't have that experience that it always seems to be us versus them, like farmers versus consumers. And mm-hmm. I don't have that mindset at all, you know. Like the the consumers underpin our business, so I, I value them and their feedback. And if if the situations that are hard to work with, we just improve our systems to get around it. But yeah, I think that'd be probably something a little bit fresh that I bring to the scene. Absolutely. When I think of what you talked about there at the beginning, in my mind, as a person who grew up on a farm and was raised on a farm. I think, you know, I can figure out how to produce chickens. I can figure out how to produce pork in the way that you're doing it. I can figure out a lot of these things. This is my experience. That's what I've grown up doing. But when you start talking about butchery and, uh, you know, the the sales, the, what do you call it, the, your store and the, the restaurant and cafe, that, uh, that terrifies me. <laughs> you know, I, when I look at farms, you know, I've looked at farmland and it is scary. It doesn't really cash flow, but like, it's a lot less scary me, to me, the idea of purchasing a $1 million farm be, than to potentially fork out a hundred thousand dollars on an enterprise that I know nothing about, like starting a, a restaurant or a, you know, a sale, you know, some sort of a, uh, a store in downtown what for me would be Rochester, Minnesota, you know, potentially an opportunity or the Twin Cities. That terrifies me, even though the investment would probably be significantly less and there's more than likely even more potential probably in those enterprises. It's just not what I know. So I love that you have that. The thing that underp- underpins that fear, maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, is the um, is going to be the future demand to, I guess, manage staff mm-hmm. and and a broad team of different tradespeople. Like, I, I manage butchers, bicycle mechanics, chefs, baristas, and I don't have any of those trades or skills myself. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of other business people, like in the in our area, it's very common that if your dad owns a car yard and you're set to take it over one day, that you go and get a business degree and then you come and you learn how to work on the cars and you do a couple of years in mechanicing and then you work on the desk and you work through the whole business so you've got all those skills. That's something I've never been interested in. I've, I don't know how to make a coffee. I don't know how to cook like our chefs do. I can't. I can't chew gears on a bicycle. Like our bicycle shop is three to 4,000 bikes a year. Uh, we've had it for 11 years now. I can't tune gears because I've sort of always been, that's not my skill set. I'm the manager. I'm the sales guy. I'm going to hire people to do the gears and just get out of the way and let them do it, not micromanage them at their job. And I feel like not having those one-on-one skills has sort of liberated me a little bit to just focus on what I do. So I'm managing about 50 staff across the different businesses at the moment and onboarding people and growing that HR team has never bothered me. For, for the most part, I enjoy people management. And I feel like we've got a good, not to not to toot my own trumpet, you know, there's always challenges and I'm always learning and I've had a few major hard knocks over the years, but I've never had an um, unfair dismissal. We've never had a, a escalator pay dispute. Up until this year, we've never had a workers' comp claim either. And a workers' mm-hmm. comp in Australia is a, an on-site injury of a staff member. And the claim that we had was somebody pulling an ale out of their finger. So, you know, not altogether diabolical. So those, I guess, the the, the skills and 
uh, the Abil family. You know, we wouldn't have a business if it wasn't for our people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, not not afraid of onboarding. We really enjoy it. Yeah, and and I like I I think about that, and, and that does seem daunting in some ways. But I think too, like it's not even so much a fear of hiring people as it is not knowing the business models. And I, I guess I know agriculture in a way that I can kind of figure out math. I can estimate how much I can produce. I can, and, and the nice thing about agriculture, at least in the commodity sense, is that there's always a market. So as long as you know there's a market, you can calculate production times price and, and figure out if the business will work and if you can hire people. And I feel as if I'll always be able to hire people. But the thing that scares me, and my wife and I now do a little bit of direct marketing, which is kind of our slight entry into this kind of model that you and your family have been doing so long. But the thing that scares me the most is I can do all the calculation on how much I can produce. But at the end of the day, if you can't sell it, you're you're out of luck. And that's probably what terrifies me the most of it is not knowing if you'll be able to market what you're producing, whether that's a coffee shop, a bike, you know, maintenance, repairs, sales, or or direct market meat. That I guess I don't know. Is that something that's yeah. been a fear for you? I've never even thought about it, to be honest with you. <laughs> wow! It's um, you know, our, our mindset is is build it and they'll come. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all of all, of, you know, customer service and sales is really easy. Is it? It's mm. give the customers what they want. Funny. <laughs> you know, like it, it, it's yeah. it's really like if 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 they're not selling coffee, if if your if your cafe is not selling coffees, you just need to ask people. Like when I took over the cafe because it was run under management for the first couple of years and it wasn't mm-hmm. doing uh, really well. So I took it back over and I sat down with a bunch of restaurateurs and just people off the street around town and I said, why don't you come to Cafe Musette? What are we doing wrong? And they told me, the coffee's too slow. Uh, the, the, they come out too hot. The feed's too oily. The chef's using too much oil. The opening hours suck. And they're just brutal. You know, you get, you get big chain stores like Walmart and whoever else. They hire these secret shoppers to come in and uh, fill out all these elaborate forms on their experience in the store when all these businesses really need to go is go to their google listing go sort by lowest and read all their one-star reviews and the customers will tell them for free what they're doing wrong yeah yeah wow yeah that's that's a totally different mindset to me because it's yeah that that is that's the thing that scares me so i look at rochester as our local city population of 125,000 or so people and huge market. It's a medical, it's a Mayo Clinic. It's, you know, worldwide known for being a, an amazing medical center. And it's always got a lot of wealth there with that medical, you know, and, and also IBM and stuff. So I know there's money there and there's people there and I'm sure there's opportunity, but the idea of going in and starting some sort of a business, that's just totally new to me. So yeah, I, I guess I'll, I appreciate what you just said. <laughs> And it's, it's just interesting, the different things that <laughs> make people scared. But any other tips or thoughts on specifically getting started in that for someone, as you hear me talk about what terrifies me, any other thoughts that <laughs> on, on well, that? The main, the main challenge that I found in the, in the food space is dealing with uh, perishables, really. Mm-hmm. You know, bikes, bicycles on the f- sales floor don't go off. Uh, and I started mm-hmm. with eggs. You know, eggs, you got a couple of weeks to get a wriggle on. But dealing yeah. with beef, pork, chicken, lamb, Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got you've got a item with an expiry date. Like normally, it's all going to probably become ready on your farm at the same time. So you've got this production glut, and then you've got a stock glut. So you know we did, we took the Salatin method on that. We cry back and freeze everything, and then obviously you've got to get your logistics around storage right. Um, but just starts you know start. I get people reaching out all the time. Start small. When we first did it, we had twenty steers in the paddock. 
and I processed one and half of it came back to my family and I, I sold a couple boxes to friends and family and I, I begged and pleaded and threatened and bartered and I got I got the meat out there and we just scaled. So even, even very early uh, 2022, I sold, I think, uh, a dozen steers off at the local sale yards because I didn't have the throughput and they were just getting fat in the paddock and eating all my grass. And, you know, we just sort of straddled them as we eased into it. And, you know, now 12 months on, we're, we're at the point where we're running out of bodies and dealing with the other uh, the other extreme there. But, you know, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. If you've got an operation yeah. with, with, you know, finishing 40 steers a year, you don't have to flick the switch and do them all direct to market at once. I just take it easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good point. And is there, you know, that's the beautiful thing of direct marketing in a way you can kind of work around that. But when you make the investment to put in like your your farm store that you have, and I want to talk, maybe talk a little bit about what you've done. I think from seeing on Twitter, that's a relatively new investment in kind of this self-serve farm store that you built. Um, and I'm sure there was some investment up front in that, not only in the cost to do it, but your probably signing a lease on some space. Maybe you already own that with the butchery and that helped cover the overhead cost of your, your space. But um, when you're taking on a big investment for something like this and it requires a little more sales, is it any different than, than starting something slow kind of just off the farm as you go? Yeah, it definitely complicates things, I guess. You know, we, we everyone's context is so different. You know, there, there, there's no real, um, I guess, anecdotal tip that covers the whole thing but the reason we purchased our butchery was we had engaged with some local butchers to receive our animals back from the abattoir and and break them down and package them mm-hmm. and there, there's not many real butchers i don't know what it's like in america but there's not heaps of butchers here that can receive a carcass and actually bust it down they're, mm-hmm. they're doing all of that breaking down in the abattoirs now most of the butchers can make mints and put a piece of parsley on it in the window and get on mm-hmm. with the show and they're really retailers ordering in box meat so there's only a few options in my town to use as butchers and it became pretty apparent that if i wanted to do more than a body of beef and two pigs a month that i'd have to be using multiple butchers and it was hard enough managing one to get the the, to get the sort of things i wanted in in terms of consistency and uh, cleanliness and the neatness of the packaging is really important to me being a retailer it's got to be uniform and neat i see a lot of people posting photos of their cryovac meat online and i'm you know, I'm not judging them for it, but I'm like, it's such a shame that their butchers don't take a little bit more pride in the presentation mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. these people have spent the last two years rearing or the last 40 yeah. years building, you know, it really gets under my goat. Uh, so, and then there was no scale behind it. Managing multiple butchers was going to be a nightmare. So I really made the decision quite quickly that if the farm, if I'm going to have a crack at the farm, I need my own boning room. So there was a local butcher in town that had been, trading for about 70 years he'd sold the business the person who bought the business went kaput Mm -hmm. so he sold all the infrastructure inside all the mincers and sausage makers and everything and he was selling Mm -hmm. the freehold and i thought great i can walk into a building that's already uh been licensed and got the right workflow because i've got no idea what i'm building so building something from i think now i could build something a lot better but at the time i had no idea so i purchased the freehold found a butcher got registered with the state and started processing and like i said picked up a heap of clients really quickly and then to touch on your point about our our front of house so i kept getting hounded because it it used to be a butchery for a long time and it had a it had a retail counter and i didn't do that i was just working at the back you know 
slicing yeah. T-bones and bagging mints and doing what we were doing, smoking some bacon. Mm-hmm. And I kept getting hounded by my customers of the bike shop and, and you know, friends and family and farm customers. When are you going to open the, the retail space? And that year, this is two years ago now, I think the farm's revenue was about $400,000 Australian. Mm-hmm. And if okay. I was to renovate that retail space and hire someone to work out of the front, even selling frozen meat on a minimum wage, it was going to be $50,000 in wages all said and done. And it just made no sense. Even if I sold all my inventory through it, it made absolutely no sense. And you know, at that stage, I was selling all that produce direct to market or to restaurants or little um, super organic supermarkets that I'm in. So there was no need to open up a shop front. I was moving everything I was producing. But mm-hmm. even if I did move it all through the store economically, it just didn't stack up. And I don't really know how it popped into my head, but I just thought, wouldn't it be nice if I could just have a big self-checkout and not pay any wages? So I sat down on the back of an envelope and scribbled it out. And I came up with a concept of emulating 24-hour gyms where people become members mm-hmm. And then they access the premise themselves without any staff being present. Yeah. And then I thought, all I need then is a self-checkout system. So I was thinking about something when you go to your big local supermarket, you take the express lane and you scan all the items yeah. over the bench yourself and tap your card and you leave. But what sure. I ended up coming up with was a membership system where people sign up to be a member. And the way they do that on, on in our business is they come and do one of my free farm tours. The membership doesn't cost anything, mm-hmm. but you've got to come on the farm and understand uh, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And that'll equal into understanding the produce and the pricing and, and the systems we're using. So they come and do a farm tour. If they're interested to be a member, I give them a unique code. They let themselves into the building 24 seven, 365 days. You could come in, you could come in 2 a.m. on Christmas morning if you wanted. You walk inside, there's about 14,000 liters of freezer space, glass doored display freezer space. Mm-hmm. And they open the freezer doors, pull out the meat they want. We've got everything in there. And then they scan the barcode on the item with a mm-hmm. app on their smartphone and it adds it to their shopping cart. And then they hit pay and they let themselves out. So I've got security cameras in there that record uh, audio and video. I've got about mm-hmm. 300 members, but you know, not all of them are very active. We're probably doing, I don't know, 50 transactions a week, about a revenue of about $2,000 Australian a week going through that business now, which is very poor for a butchery, but it's very good for a business with no running costs except for 2% going to Stripe, really, uh, or whatever Stripe's handling fee is. And in in almost, I think about just, yeah, just over 18 months of running that, I've been monitoring most of the visits on my, uh, you know, security system, and I haven't found a single instance of product shrinkage in that time, which is the first thing everyone goes to. What about the theft? Well, it hasn't happened yet. And I, I really think getting people on the farm, that that we, people want to be a member. You know, we got to come and spend two hours on my farm with me on a Sunday morning first. And all of a sudden, half of them aren't interested. It's a really good elimination process. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard of that kind of a model with a meat company. I've heard of people doing some sort of a self-serve thing, you know, leave cash in a box or something like that. But you've kind of upped it to the next level of technology. And I I guess I'm curious, what are the different pieces of technology, the actual infrastructure investments you had to make to make this possible? Um, And, and it was about, it was probably five or $6,000. And if I had to do it again, I could probably do it for half the price. So the, the security code system on the door is pretty cheap. A couple grand, you can get a security system to install that a couple high def cameras, few hundred dollars a piece. 
and then people are using their own phones to scan it. So there's no hardware for that. You just need to uh, – so, so the app's called uh, Express Checkout, and they just have a little royalty, you know, 1% or a bit under a percent that they take out of the cost, which is far better than, you know, 30% wages, which most of these sorts of businesses run at anyway. And just clicked it all together and off we went. Now, obviously, I had to renovate the front of the store and I had to buy all the freezers. But, I, I, like, I use that room to pick and pack all my orders out of anyway. So the freezer space is is multi-purpose and I probably would have had it sitting there regardless. So I don't really view that as a cost of setting up that business. And I think if I did it again, for anyone listening, that's uh, this has piqued their interest. If I... If I roll out more of these stores, I'm going to go, I've already spoken to some tech boys. I'm going to go down the route of getting a different label printer and label printing. So making all the labels on the food with an RFID chip in the background, which is a little electronic chip. So what how, what I would love it to work would be, the way I would love it to work would be you tap your credit card on the door to gain access. So you don't need a membership. You enter the room. This would be a one person at a time. You'd have to put an airlock door system on it. You'd enter the room. You'd fill up your shopping basket with all the meat. And then you walk out of the door again. There's a bar There's a bar around the door frame. And it takes a photo of everything in your handbag. And it charges the card that you use to get let in. I've sp- th- those systems exist around the world. Really? China and Japan use them. I've spoken to some developers and they've quoted me about 80 grand. Uh, you know, and that's an open-ended budget and my system's working. But I'm thinking if you want to roll out five or 10 of these around the region, that's not a very big uh, outlay to have such a... It, it, it's, I get criticised a little bit for being low wages, for trying to cut wages out of this. Ironically, I, I feel like I'm a, I'm a reasonable job creator. But for me, I don't want to spend that... I don't want to put somebody in a little retail store. It's probably not the job they want to do and, you know, just say that they're not passionate about. I'd rather take those wage funds and, and re-divert them to increasing management on the farm i'd I'd rather put them back on the land Mm -hmm. yep no totally before on the logistics side of that thing i'm curious inventory management how you do that do people just come in and take all your ribeyes and leave you with everything else or how do you manage that and then how often are you restocking this how often are you checking to make sure there's no theft uh yeah talk about the logistics of managing that side well, I'm checking for theft periodically, but it's not really a big job because they're motion-sensored cameras. And if you had four customers for the day, five minutes each, you can fast forward 20 minutes of footage in a few minutes on your phone. Like it's mm-hmm. not a big deal. I don't sure. do it every day. Yeah, uh, We're butchering five days a week in this. My butchers start at 4.30 in the morning. That's They do whatever roster they want because we're not customer-facing. They've got that flexibility. Sure. Uh, and so we're restocking it multiple times a week. I've also got a couple 20-foot shipping containers that I run as freezers that I... Uh, store more inventory on in shelving inside. So I, I'm rotating stock through that out the front. But that's a couple of times a week uh, we're doing that. And yeah, sometimes people come in and clean me out of certain stock, but it's a it's a current, it's a bat- ongoing battle keeping prime cuts in stock as it is. But then on the flip side, I've also got some customers that come in and they they buy all my Osobuco or all my skirt steaks. You know, if, when you've got a range of uh, customers, because not all of our customers, most people aren't buying our food for the taste and that might, uh, offend some region farmers or some they might think oh you're not putting enough effort into the taste but there's many reasons why people buy our produce and a lot of them buy it because they want to be feeding uh really healthy food f- from farms with kind uh welfare practices to their young family and they can only afford mince and also buco and dice steaks and, and chicken wings so that's what they buy and it, it just the more people we onboard the better that stock 
uh, throughput seems to balance out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I know that's the biggest thing that has been one of our struggles as we do this, uh, this direct market thing is the fear of that inventory management. And we've kind of gone about that in a way of uh, trying to sell as much bulk in, in prepackaged 45 pound boxes. And whenever we run out of some cut, whether it's ribeyes and we can't or whatever, we can't box any more of these, what we call eighths, everything we have extra, we sell by the cut. And that kind of limits, yes. so that's kind of how we've managed it. And I would love to do something like this, but that's been my fear is, you know, we'll have, you know, if we want to constant, keep a constant stock of ribeyes in the shelf, we'll have way more of whatever else that we can't move. And and so that's interesting that and it seems like people who do this, they, I don't know, it seems to work. So maybe, maybe that there well, is, you know, there's just a, a right. The logical answer is. The logical answer is just playing to the supply demand market, isn't it? If you if your demand's outstripping your supply, you just need to put your price up. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, if you ribeyes and you, you need to price them to where they're matching the sell through rate of your mm -hmm. mints, and and maybe if you put your ribeye price up uh, to slow that down, you can counter that by putting your mints price down, and they yeah. might level out. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. But you know, I don't lose sleep over these sorts of details because. <laughs> If, if you know people come in my butchering quite often, there's no, there's no, uh, so we call ribeye, um, I, I guess scotch on the bone here, but you know, th those, those, mm -hmm. uh, New York strips. I'm trying to remember American cuts here because you guys do inches strips is feet, right. and, yeah. and, and strange meat names. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I don't lose sleep over the fact that they're not always there because it, it is the nature of the beast and people that have done a farm tour and appreciate our, our ecological welfare community mission understand that our supply is growing and we don't always have everything they want and they just they just work with it they try yeah. try something else it's it's yeah. not something that i worry about i do get sure. customers i've had quite a few people say could i buy all the ribeye you produce because my family's carnivore and that's all we want and i say no because it's not fair to everybody else so i just i just try to pass it around yeah well, you mentioned something there I wanted to talk about too, and you talked about kind of your welfare and your your missions. And and I know on your website you've got those five kind of, I guess some people call them key messages or goals or I, I, I forget what you call it, pillars, maybe five pillars or something. Can you talk kind of through those five pillars, the the pieces that you build your business around that is kind of what what the consumers are, you know, trying to buy into Absolutely. more than just the meat. If I can, if I can tell a little bit of a yarn, this is an Aussie thing. We're going to have a bit of a yarn now. <laughs> yeah, it's said sure. a bit of pretext about that because it, it might might be interesting to people, might not. But a few years ago, probably, geez, it was a while now, probably six or seven years ago, I was nominated for Young Entrepreneur of the Year in our region, which is mm -hmm. uh, business operators under thirty years old, mm -hmm. and they sent me this big form and I had to fill out all this information and I hate paperwork. Like I do everything I can to get out of paperwork. The the, the extent of paperwork for me is a um you know profit and loss and a balance sheet. I review them weekly, but apart from all the paper pushing and stuff, I'm really not interested in that. And they gave me all this onerous self-congratulating stuff. I had to tell them how good I was at this and how good I was at that. And they wanted mission statements and all these different things. And we didn't have a mission statement. This is for the bike shop mainly. We didn't have a mission statement. So I made one up and I said, you know, I said in it, we don't have a mission statement, but if you want one, here's one. We want to improve people's well-being by getting them outside and reducing congestion on the road and lowering emissions and blah, blah, blah. You know, just this boring, uh, meaningless gruel that every Fortune 500 company just spills onto their consumers. It's all absolute tr junk. 
and they're all exactly the same. You could you could pull apart every mission statement in existence and you know reduce them to the same monotonous things. <laughs> yeah. So I made it up and I sort of I spent about 15 minutes on my application and the guy who ended up winning that year, I didn't win that year. Mm-hmm. Um, he told me, because he's a friend of mine, he spent two days on his application um, mm-hmm. telling everyone how good he was. Interestingly, Jared, if I may segue a tiny bit, yes. I got nominated for the region. That was the local awards. I got nominated for the regional awards last year and I won, which was a bit <laughs> of fun. We had a good time with that. That's awesome. Uh, wow. Back onto this mission statement, there was yeah. no mission behind the bike shop. Like we we like bikes, we didn't buy the bike shop because we bought. My family's never started businesses really. We've always bought businesses. Sure. So the farm, you could argue, is probably one of the first businesses in three generations my family's ever started. Yeah. Uh, this this the, the bike shop didn't have a mission statement. We weren't passionate about bikes. We weren't passionate about reducing road congestion. It was just a good business to make money. We like bikes. We're not hurting anybody. You know, onwards. Yeah. Uh, my dad, interestingly, his his point of view has always been to deliberately buy businesses that he's not interested in because then he makes decisions that relate exactly to the market's response, not his own prejudice. So mm-hmm. to give you an idea on that, before he had the bike shop, my dad had a record store selling CDs and DVD, DVDs mm-hmm. for about 11, 12 years. And my yeah. dad hates music. <laughs> wow. You know, it's not like he's some... Um, country yeah. and western fella that just filled up the uh shelves with keith urban and garth brooks he didn't care he just looked at what sold and put it on the shelf yeah um yeah. but i but i digress what i come back to is on the farm i started researching different production models and seeing what made sense to me and what felt good and then i started managing staff on the farm we've got two farm hands and two butchers at the moment and i and some of the, one of the farms we have is out of phone reception so when the staff are down there checking on cattle and pigs they need to be able to make decisions without phoning a friend and I don't like staff calling me asking what to do you know they should understand the procedures of the business and the values of the business and be able to self-author and it just naturally just by co-laboring with the boys in the paddock we started coming up with uh, a hierarchy of needs on the farm that we would we would decision like a decision making matrix and Mm -hmm. and that evolved into the flywheel and I've I really enjoy doing farm tours because you get asked questions and even listening to yourself articulate some some things sometimes defines and and creates a reality about what you're actually uh believing and advocating for i don't know if that makes sense it does so I, we ended I up with completely this completely agree yeah we ended up doing this five-step process so for people listening it's on our website but number one and this is the first decision making matrix we have is um, animal welfare and what we mean by welfare is does it suit the context of that animal so for us pigs are animals that are raised uh that live in nature outside in forests so all of a sudden it means no sheds and then all of a sudden it means they need ample shade because they're under forest. So you've got to look at that pig. They need wallows. You can look at the context of that animal. Welfare, the industries at large say they, they, they justify and defend their positions because they're basing it on outcome metrics. So they're saying, well, we want to keep using sow stalls because uh, our death rate of piglet, suckling piglets on uh, mother is the lowest in the industry because we're so that's actually high welfare because our outcomes are so good well you know jared i can make sure that you never break your leg um (laughs) falling down a slide of stairs or riding a push bike around town if i lock you in solitary confinement for the rest of your life you know and that's a that'd give us an outcome metric that's no injury no harm but it'd be a horrible life sentence for any uh personal being to go through so we look at the welfare of the, the the context of the animal so cows eating grass and not grain chickens being outside and not in sheds, et cetera, et cetera. So that's our first decision-making matrix. And I call it a flywheel because then we roll into what I call our environmental uh, backbone. We believe animals are the environment. 
and an extension of that is human management is a, is a part of a functioning, like a healthy functioning landscape. And so that's a decision that when we're making decisions, I'm moving our cows to a new pasture or, you know, if we're going to top that field off and mulch it or whatever it might be, does it benefit the environment? And interestingly, if you get the welfare for the context of the animal sorted properly, the environment's done, like it's sorted. If you're moving your cattle properly to the context of what a cow needs, normally your environment's pretty well looked after as well. Uh, so that's how they're a flywheel. They're, they're building momentum, feeding into each other. Number mm -hmm. three is we want to create healing foods for our environment. So for, for our community, I believe that uh, food can heal. And I've seen that in my family. And I've seen that with with countless hundreds of customers now, kids that can't eat eggs because it gives them ex eczema, people mm -hmm. that can't eat pork because it gives them indigestion and um, and diarrhea and, and all these other issues, people that can't eat beef because it gives them hives. Like I've had it all. And then all these people, they're, they're buying my meat and produce and giving me this feedback that they're that they're able to not only tolerate it, but they're able to thrive on it and they're, and they're fixing their anemia that they got through their uh, pregnancy or whatever it might be. So we're starting to work with doctors in town and do nutrition testing on our food to try and benchmark exactly why this might be so we can mm -hmm. um, amplify that part of our management process to in increase that output of that goodness. Mm -hmm. Number four is we want to build community. So we, we host regular training days, open days. We take interns. We do free um, tours with community. We have school groups come and do tours, and we want to be part of our community. And number five is we want to make a profit. And we believe that if we do all those five things uh, and then we generate a profit and we can tip that back into the front, into the enhancing welfare, and we can scale yeah. our business. Yeah. And and that's also the way we do things when we're pricing. So we don't take, we don't set, we don't look at what our competitors or our colleagues are pricing things at and then work backwards on how to make it work on the balance sheet. We do the welfare first and we're bootstrapping. It's not like we're um, going and buying gold flakes for our pigs to eat. Like we're bootstrapping <laughs> as we go with infrastructure and inputs, but yeah. it's welfare, environment, food quality, community engagement, and then we price it to make a profit. And our food isn't cheap. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's expensive because we're we're not externalizing any costs. We're not asking any of our animals on the farm to subsidize the final cost for the end consumer by making them suffer in a shed environment or by making them um, partake in a non non species appropriate diet. And then and then the same thing with the environment. We're not asking the environment to pick up the tab, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. But uh, and I, or go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so this flywheel system that we've got with our five values, it works for us because not only does it uh, clarify our goals on the farm and not only does it give direction to the farmhands to understand and self-author um, their, their complex decision-making throughout the day, but it also explains and communicates our value structure and our subsequent pricing to our consumers. I like the idea of a flywheel flywheel and that it feeds into itself and it sounds similar to what alan savory calls a holistic context right is is the the, the decision making framework but I, I like the the term flywheel and that it builds on itself and and it's kind of neat too how i was just we were just my wife and i were just talking at a conference here last week and kind of brought up around marketing and the conversation around uh you know sharing things like th what we call i guess our key messages or something like that that we share with our customers and the topic of profitability came up on that. And that's one of our three key messages that we share. And, you know, is it right? Should we talk about profitability? People always think we're selling things too expensive and too much, but um, I, I like the way that you've 
built in. I don't remember now if I read this on your website or your Twitter or something is that, you know, being profitable is not being greedy and and it's not like them supporting you is just going to, you know, buy your next whatever. It's it's allowing you to live a good life, to allow you to bring more people into the business, whether that's employees or future family and generations, the next generation of your family. And it's allowing you to expand your business, which is what they want, right? They're supporting your food production system by purchasing your product. They want to see that food production system expand. And by making you more profitable, that allows you to produce more meat in this way. It produ- it, it, it allows you to manage more land in this way. And, and, you know, I think profitability almost should be one of the biggest things that customers and probably is, I don't think I've ever had pushback on customers hearing, you know, around from customers around the topic of us being more profitable. So I don't know. It's just an if, interesting, if, if customers, if customers don't like you talking money and don't and don't like the idea of you being hyper profitable, I'd love to be hyper profitable. And if a customer didn't uh, appreciate that, because they should be judging the, the produce that they're buying on the merit of the produce, not worrying about whether I'm making money or losing money yeah. on it. It should, you know, yeah. it, it's you're trading, you're bartering, you know, mm-hmm. cash for beef. Like what's it got to do yeah. with how much money I make or don't make out of it? Mm-hmm. But I want to be hyper profitable. And if a customer uh, if that offends a customer, that customer is living in a poverty mindset and they're just not the people for me. That's mm-hmm. fine. There's other people out there for them. And I'm not trying to say, don't shop with me if you don't want to make me heaps of money. I'm not trying to be too abrasive. Mm-hmm. But what's with this poverty mindset where we don't mind if the uh, the dentist or the lawyer, who everyone hates visiting, like you only go to these people when you've got an enormous liability surfacing in your life. You go to abscess in your mouth or your, or your wife's just left you and you're going to court and you don't bat an eyelid about them turning up in an Audi. Yeah. But you know, I bought a Land Rover Defender. My my wife, the, our family car. My wife got T-boned just before Christmas, and mm-hmm. I was so uh, I was so thankful that I had a safe car at the time for my wife and my two sons and my pet dog to sit mm-hmm. in. Um, and the car was, you know, essentially a write-off. So I went yeah. and bought them a new car, and I bought them a new Land Rover Defender because it won the safety rating. And I'm like, I want the safest car. Mm-hmm. I want a a car that I, you know, makes my wife happy. I don't want to have to worry about them getting T-boned. It's already happened once. It could ha- could mm-hmm. well happen again. Yeah. And I know that that in my region, that sort of turn, and I put Walkie Farm down the side of it, and that could be a bit obnoxious and a bit abrasive to people. <laughs> but you know what? We work really hard. We make a lot of sacrifices in our life that other people uh, don't, and that's something that we value. Um, mm. And we're going to go after it. I'm, and I'm a little bit un- unapologetic about it, and I'm, I'm bullish yeah. on the fact that farms should be uh, profitable places and that people should appreciate that. Yeah. They yeah. should want that for their farmer. Yeah. You know, people, you start when you, when you have uh, personal finances at home and in your business crippling you, you start making poorer business decisions. You start pinching pennies. You, you start becoming stingy. You know, your farm hand that might need a bit of a pay rise to uh, just help his family get along with their rental in town. If your business is, is not doing well, you're going to say no to his pay rise and that might end up with him leaving and then you're really stuffed. Mm-hmm. So having like having this stingy um, poverty mindset and, and wanting people just to get by, it doesn't actually uh, serve the greater cause. When your business has positive cash flow and your bottom line's really good and you look out at the field and you go, you know what, that fence isn't too good. It's a bit of a liability. My cattle might get onto the road and stuff. You've got the money just to go and fix it. You, you don't have to yeah. lose sleep over a bad quality fence. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I, I think you're right. I think farmers should be more profitable. We work hard. We 
and then people talk about it being a business of love or, a, you know, a, a lifestyle, a, a job of lifestyle or whatever and stuff. And so because of that, they're willing to sacrifice the profit side. And that really, I don't think should happen, but I, I'm, I'm curious. It seems to me like from the talks of it and stuff that, that sales hasn't been an issue and stuff too. And so that's a good position to be into where you can charge a price that brings in a, a, a fair premium to generate you good revenue and and you've not had trouble marking it. I think that's a probably a big argument against, you know, producing or selling stuff at a high price is it's maybe not scalable and and maybe it doesn't have to be. Well, on that, Jared, is I've I've priced it for what I need and in you know, the last four years I've done a bunch of price rises because we've had a lot of uh input movement and and you know cost uh variation of different things here mm-hmm. but la the last six months of last year i dropped the price on more SKUs than i put up because mm-hmm. our enterprise hit scale in certain enterprises where my input costs drastically came down so i just put my prices down so i could sell more of the stuff yeah you know yeah. so just just because i was getting x dollars for this cut uh, and and you know getting through the produce all of a sudden when I could could do it cheaper to the, the consumers that have supported me for the last three years I did like it's and and yeah. that's and that's in the name that's obviously maybe counter to the argument of profitability but it is pro uh, scaling which yeah. hopefully in the end I can manage more animals in high welfare systems manage more landscapes and make more money yeah. the whole circle of life on the farm yeah yeah. I don't know. People don't need to talk about money the way I do. Like I made the decision that when I'm on podcasts or, or doing interviews or on farm tours, I wear my heart on the sleeve a little bit because so many people come to my farm tours going, we, we want to do this on our land. Dad's mm-hmm. got 300 acres and he's just cropping and we want to do a lamb direct to market operation. We don't even know where to start. So I tell them like, you know, uh, it costs $120 to cut and pack a lamb here in Australia. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you, any every every Joe Bob's getting four hundred dollars in the market for a lamb, and the really good producers are getting five hundred and fifty. Like, and 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 this is what I'm doing. These are my overheads. These are my costs. I wear it on my sleeve, yeah. and it's it's really confronting doing it. I, I probably sound comfortable doing it, but you you're opening yourself up to judgment from the people that make you that think you make too much money than mm-hmm. the people that think you make not enough. Yeah, you know, all the people that think you're lying about it any which way. But I've just seen the impact I've been able to have locally about encouraging young people to take a leap of faith and actually get involved and have a crack. And for yeah. me, it's, it's, it's worth it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you do that. I, I was talking with somebody about this not too long ago, just a friend that, well, I think it just in general, people should talk more about money. It's got this kind of negative connotation or kind of negative feel to it, but I think it brings and that's personal and business and everything. I, I think, you know, my brother and I, we talk and discuss business a lot and it pushes both of us to be better and to work harder and and in families that never talk about money, they're never taught about money and they never learn about money. And so they go and follow the same path as so many do, which is just money comes in, money goes out, spend it, you know, enjoy it. And they they don't think about the long term. And so, you know, I, I, it's too bad. There's kind of a negative, uh, I can't even think of the word, but it's just a negative sense around the, the, the conversation of money. And a lot of it comes from probably people, you know, I, I would say I probably don't talk about it as openly, not, you know, as, as I could, and it's for fear of being, yeah, maybe judged by a lot of people. But I think it would probably benefit everyone, both those sharing and those rece- you know hearing, to be uh, discussing that and to learn from others. Because I don't know, yes, and also with social media, absolutely. it's pretty. Uh, social media can be pretty uh, uh, confusing too. You might see somebody who 
looks pretty good on social media, but is falling apart and, you know, financials and stuff too. And you're trying Absolutely. to strive to be like them and you're learning and from in the Australia, exact person. And in here, we've like Australia has a bit of a tall poppy syndrome as well. And that's something that when I look to America, I really, uh, and you can, you can correct me if this is a wrong or, or out of date mm. uh, interpretation, but you look at the, the South in America and it really looks like um, success is celebrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I, maybe on a more of a historic timeline than a than a modern timeline with modern politics. But it's you know, it it's. I want to hang out with people who are doing well. I want to support people that are doing well. You know, I I, I don't have this poverty mindset or, or this or this jealous mindset. Like, why? Mm-hmm. Let's all win. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I agree with you too. And it is too bad when yeah when you let personal. It it does seem like more and more often these days largely society anyway i guess people look at individuals of success and rather than celebrate like you're saying it's a it's well he shouldn't have that if i can't have that and if i can't have that nobody should have that kind of a thing and and that's a really sad way to live and they don't look at how what can i learn from this individual who did that they they say what why you know what can I do to, or who can I vote for to take what he has to give to me or something? And that, can, uh, I, we're can I stick my neck out of the trench and make a little bit of a political, possibly <laughs> feather ruffling um, uh, well, observation? No one, most of my listeners are from here. So if they have something against you, they'll have to fly to Australia to do something about it. So that's right. <laughs> well, while, they're here, I'll, um, while they're here, I'll give them a farm tour and take them to dinner. Perfect. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I don't know what it's like, what you've observed, but in our region, like I'm sort of, our region's called, our region's called Greater Hume and Riverina, and they're basically the blue ribbon farming area in Australia. Good rainfall, we're at 800 mil, which is like 30 something inches. We've got nine solid growing months and the rest of the time the, the farm's pretty brittle, but you know, everyone works with it because it, it is what it is uh, and we're used to it. And there's a lot of big, uh, nice, highly productive conventional operations here and you've got all these little regenerative farms popping up around this place and most of them are are tiny and people are working a a job to get the wheels going and i've got nothing against small farms i've got nothing against people working second jobs like you know that that's that's me also and and i celebrate all of that but what i think is a little bit of a paradigm with the conventional boys uh in the industry locking head with the new little regen guys that are on Facebook telling everyone they figured out all the solutions to regenerative farming is a little bit of a political contrast as well, because I don't know what you've observed, but a lot of the people in my area that are starting their little micro regen farms and doing everything beautiful and wonderful, there's a real socialistic communist um, prevalence in those communities where, where, and and they're really, uh, they're really uh, anti-profit, and anti-capital mm-hmm. and anti-expansion. And and they look around the world and all the problems we have are because of big businesses, you know, which we do mm-hmm. have a lot of big problems because of big, big, big businesses. But, you know, getting rid of big business might not be the right answer to that. And I've just always thought that maybe all the, all the big conventional farmers out there that are managing vast landscapes and making huge environmental impacts might be a little bit more um, open to regen low input organic uh practices if there wasn't if the if the poster people for these weren't always these um aggressive communists <laughs> i don't know yeah. that's probably said a little bit too harshly no no that's interesting it 
It is interesting. I, I know there's a lot of people, I would agree with you, and that have that kind of perspective on growth and scale. And and I've had those conversations with some of those people of like, at what point, if my business succeeds being regenerative, at what point do I go from being regenerative local family farmer saving the world to the enemy, the big, you know, the the factory farm, even if, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a... Well, I've, I've actually, I've already sort of been wrestling with that in my mind and I'll, I'll give you an example and, and how I've thought myself around it and the flywheel reference helped it. But yeah. the certain enterprises on the farm get to a level where some of the tasks could be made more efficient with some uh, infrastructure installed mm-hmm. uh, and that would make my staff's life a bit easier and make things a bit quicker around the farm. But then when we've sat down and discussed it, we thought that those uh, things that we wanted to implement to save time and make things a bit earlier wouldn't were, or easier were not actually in the animal and landscape's best interest. It was in ours. Mm. You sort of you you, you keep mm-hmm. building efficiencies until you're a shed. So there's got to be a point a point where like we used to walk around our farm everywhere because we didn't have enough money in the in the beginning to buy a little side by side and then we bought a bicycle we used to ride our bike everywhere and put the um eggs in a milk crate on the back pannier rack and then mm-hmm. i bought a side by side uh but you know uh, after in th- those efficiencies are obviously um harmless and useful but mm-hmm. the, you get to the point where you go from a nesting box to a roll away box to a shed with lights in it <laughs> to a shed that's a bit closer and doesn't leave the, the the that side of the farm too often because it's too long of a drive and it sort of becomes a slippery slope of where do you wh- yeah. when do you become like a big industry when do you become the problem instead of the solution yeah. <laughs> and and that that's where it becomes important to have your holistic context uh, written down and to you know actually know what your values are and stick to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's a good point. Yeah. Well, I. Not to change topics too much, but we're already here at an hour and I want to get a little more information on your, well, (laughs) there's so much. So (laughs) on your farm, I guess, to start. So uh, you kind of, we've kind of jumped around a bunch of this, but uh, could you share kind of what got you actually back into the production side again and what the evolution of the, the farm production has been to today and yeah, maybe we'll just yeah talk on that for here the last little bit. Sure. Yeah, so like I said, I started moving my dad's steers around the farm and just putting in uh, poly braid with step-ins, moving them daily and had, had no infrastructure. And it was really challenging. With I started carting water. You know, you listen to all the – everyone that's been there done that. They say don't cart water. <laughs> and now the first thing, someone, when they ask me for, um, for advice, I say don't cart water. But if I had my time again, I still would have carted water because it's a lesson that I had to learn. And I was just so uh, motivated just to get going. I didn't, mm-hmm. and, and I wanted to prove, prove some stuff to myself and my father. Uh, so we, we started moving the cattle around. And then I bought two pigs off uh, Facebook or Gumtree or one of those websites and put them in a paddock. And I started buying 20 kilo bags of rolled oats and crushed corn in the shop here, which, as you can imagine, cost me a fortune. And I fed those pigs up. And we processed our first year and sold half of it to friends and family. And then I processed my first couple of pigs. And when I got married, I thought, my wife's a great cook. And I thought, oh, I better learn a few uh, meals. So when my wife's got kids, I can help out here and there. I thought, pork belly, I'm going to be the pork belly guy. So like once a week, we can have Jake's famous pork belly. And when friends come over, I can wow them with my fluffy, crispy crackle and delicious yeah. flavors. And we went 
for a few weeks there, I'd buy the pork belly and we just always felt crook afterwards. We always felt boggy in the guts and stomach mm. cramps and just not good. And that was supermarket pork belly. Yeah. And then we started buying some from the local farmer's market, but it still wasn't amazing. And I decided mm-hmm. to take a punt and raise a couple of pigs on the farm and didn't do it very well. You know, that was set stocked, uh, even mm-hmm. though it was only two pigs. They were like in a four acre paddock. And as you, as you know, they just trashed it, processed the pigs and ate it. And it was the big deciding moment. And no issues. There's actually three of us in my household that can't. It was it was my wife, uh, my mother-in-law, and myself that haven't been able to tolerate pork before that. And mm-hmm. none of us had any issues with just these pigs that have been outside and had a bit of grass and had a bit of exercise and a bit of grain and some waste stream uh, fruit and veggies and anything else. And that got me really motivated to do a few more pigs. So last financial year, we knocked over 270 pigs, I think of um, varying sizes. Uh, so that's a three-year trajectory. And then we got some broilers in. And like I said, the economics of the broilers is really poor because we have an eight-hour round trip to take our broilers to the closest abattoir. Uh, but no one in the area, so like to give listeners an idea, I'm on the highway halfway between Canberra and Melbourne. And basically no one between Canberra and Melbourne does broilers because of the reason I just said. The, 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 there's no mark. No one's built a market for it because the barrier of entry is so high. So there's no mark. There's <laughs> there's no supply and there's no demand and there's no infrastructure to support either. Uh, but I thought, you know what? I I did a chicken tractor on the farm for my own personal uh, wants and needs at home. And watching the pasture respond was so exciting. And eating the chicken was so exciting. And I thought, I'm just going to build this enterprise and basically scratch by breaking even on it, making a dollar a chuck or whatever it might have been, just to build it to a just to see if I can build it to a level where it makes sense to invest a bit more money and, and get my own infrastructure going. So, you know, at the moment we're doing maybe uh 200, 200 to 250 chooks every three weeks. And I've just bought this portable abattoir, which I'm in the process of getting certified so I can process them on farm here. And I've also uh, while I'm on the phone with you right now, actually we've got a fifty foot uh brooding shed getting delivered on the on the property it's an old semi trailer body refrigerator body that i'm going to convert into a brooding shed which should help me uh triple my production i should be able to put out about 50 birds a day uh with that with that brooder and just you know slowly scale that organically mm-hmm. in our area and you know all of a sudden it's gone from break even i'm going to be saving four dollars per chicken in transport costs so that's fuel and labor oh. down to melbourne and back that doesn't include kill fee it doesn't yeah. include uh, the, the the attributed liability of my staff and myself getting up at 11 o'clock at night to load the trailer, to leave Aubrey at midnight, to get to Melbourne at four in the morning. You know, I'm always in the back of my head. That's a bit of a liability. So there's so many benefits to that. Uh, what else do we do? We, we're just getting into sheep. I have been buying wiener lambs off people, you know, 20, 25 kilograms, which is about halfway to finished weight, and then finishing them. Um, on our farm rotationally grazing them around but now we're getting back into because i've picked up a few new lease blocks we've got the land to start a flock so we're getting into some shedding sheep there's a guy locally that's uh bred a composite his name is andrew freshwater he's bred a shedding composite called catalyst which i'm buying some inland use off him to get going with that enterprise we're planting heaps of trees doing a lot of uh, different things but at the moment we're just i guess priming ourselves oh we're also into breeding cattle now so to, to divert back to cattle a little bit three four years ago when we started and i ran the economics of the beef we could buy a yearling steer for eight hundred dollars 
and you know spend six eight months on it to finish it uh, spend a thousand dollars processing it and then get four and a half thousand dollars at the retail market and now those same uh, yearling steers uh, anywhere from 18 to 23 $2,400 in the wow. current market. So the economics have completely blown out of that. So we decided to get into breeding instead of finishing, which is why we're about to run out of cattle. I said, told you before that we're about to run <laughs> sure. out of supply because I haven't been buying in trading animals. I've got a farm full of cows now. Mm-hmm. But I've just got involved with a breed of cattle called Nguni. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They're an African Only through your breed. Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're not very common. And from my understanding, there's no genetics in America. I've had a few people okay. on Twitter message me asking for semen. And one of the guys that I'm friends with here in Australia has actually just quarantined a bull um, mm. and successfully exported semen to Australia. So if anyone's interested okay. in that, they can um, email me or something and I can put them in contact with him. Sure. But there's only 200 or so purebred cows in Australia. So it hasn't mm. been here too long. And they've been growing them slowly. The, the breeders that came from South Africa and brought the genetics over here have been breeding them very slowly with a with, you know culling everything to st- you know start the country off with a really good base of cattle mm-hmm. but they're small framed um early maturing early, highly fertile easy calving and one of the things that's really interesting about them is they've got a really high blood urea so it's, it's you know closer to a goat than a cow so they're mm-hmm. able to uh browse on uh interesting plants like lantana and black wattle there are a couple of sort of endemic things here that can get out of control on your farm and cattle normally don't touch them. Yeah. Uh, and they're able to eat rank feed, dry feed standing on the ground and really thrive on it. And this is, so I'm interested in them for a range of reasons. Probably one of the biggest reasons I love them is there's 80 different colors and patterns in the genetic pool. And I'm going to be evaluating to my animals by tanning hides and selling hides. So it seems like a no brainer to have an animal where I can get 80 catalog items out of them instead of one, you know, just black or just red or whatever it might be. Yeah. But because there's no cows available in the country, I bought a few bulls. I've got a couple of purebred cows, but I bought a couple of bulls and I'm running them over shorthorns and jerseys. So I bought, a, uh, you know, a, a, I don't know, 30 shorthorn cows and I've probably got about 40 uh, retired dairy jersey cows of varying ages and the bulls have gone over them. And I'm going to be experimenting a bit with how those first crosses go on the farm. And then making the decision, you know, if I get more beef cows or if I keep um, pursuing the dairy cows, which are a lot cheaper. And the yeah. jerseys have a lot of uh, a lot of things going for them, I think. But in terms of a womb on the ground, you can pick one up here for a grand, which is a third of the price of a beef womb. Yeah. And I'm going to be scaling numbers of my Nguni breed by using those breeds on the farm and then just eventually breeding back to pure over time. Sure. Yeah. So, oh man, the breed is interesting. I've never heard of them and it sounds like a good one. I'm curious, you're a business guy and you know your numbers. So I'm curious if, if the, if the economics ever change back again to where the calf price comes down, are you, do you think you're willing to sell the cows and go back to buying yearlings or is the cow business something you're pretty set on once you've gotten into it? I'm enjoying the breeding. I'm especially, Mm -hmm. I'm especially enjoying it because when I purchased these 30 short horn cows I had, they were in calf to an Angus bull and I think we lost six of them. I think we had a 20% fatality rate in infancy because to paint, I know that's a horrid data point, but to paint a picture is our 80% of our farm basically been underwater for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was incredibly wet carving and we had all these viruses coming down the river because we're downstream uh, of all the area. Like we're right next to the river. Our neighbors have river frontage. So everything was coming through our place and we had this virus called crypto come on 
And uh, the vets wanted to pen up all our animals and give them antibiotics twice a day, which I didn't understand. You know, penning up all these three-week-old calves, giving them antibiotics for a viral infection didn't make much sense to me. Yeah. Um, so we sort of just let culling take its place. And now we're starting to calf down with our first lot of Nguni F1s out of the same cows. And it's been the same season. It's been just as wet. You know, we had mm-hmm. we had 70% of our annual rainfall in October uh, or November. So just absolutely horrid conditions. And the Nguni cross calves hit the ground so vigorous that we couldn't even catch them to tag them the day they dropped. Uh, compared to the short horns that were just dropping dead and we could we could walk up to them and grab them three, four weeks old, no problems. So what I, what I guess I'm getting to is I've become really uh, excited about breeding an apocalyptic cow. I'm calling them my apocalypse cows, low-input apocalyptic yeah. cow needing no assistance. Yeah. And it's it's become a welfare point to me because talking about my, my first flywheel thing and, and what welfare means to different people, you know, good welfare for your animal is if they've got a bad infection, giving them antibiotics to fix them, right? Like I know a lot of people, I'm I'm anti-antibiotics because I don't want to use it as a crutch. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give my animals antibiotics as a preventative matter or, a matter or to um, accelerate weight gain or anything like that. But we had a cow the other day that the afterbirth hadn't come out after three or four days and then her... Um, her temperature started rising. So we got the vet out, we pulled it, we pulled it out, we gave her antibiotics. But mm-hmm. for me, higher welfare is now she's culled and her heifer calf's culled. You know, they, they're out of the breeding program now. And yeah. to to over time to breed back to an animal that that's less likely to happen to, yeah. that for me is the, the welfare story and what mm-hmm. we should be doing. And I think that you know we can hopefully uh, achieve some uh change in our farm and in our region by getting behind these animals and, and advocating for them. On the flip side, if, if trading steers come back to $800, uh, I'll buy them and run it as a parallel enterprise because yeah. I'll be able to sell the stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yep. No, it's, that's an interesting topic. I, I I don't know if there's, I think there's kind of a sister school to the Ranching for Profit School over in Australia. I'm not sure if you've attended or if you're familiar with it at all. Uh, we've got um we got resource consulting services with Terry McCosker. That sounds right. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's probably it. Interestingly, the first National Nguni Field Day we had in August last year <laughs> up yeah. near up in a real big broad acre farm, Terry McCosker came and gave a presentation mm. and he's very bullish on Nguni and he's uh, apparently yeah. got a few of the cows in himself. Nice. Yeah, no, that 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 at the Ranching for Profit School here in the United States anyway, I went last year and they talk about at the kind of the end of it, this like nature's cow and then nature plus one, they talk about if you, you know, if there's this big ranch and everybody leaves and 300 years comes back, what would be there? And you'd have, you know, the animal that survived would be interesting. And then you just run the numbers on what kind of profitability that herd would generate with no work and no labor and everything. And then, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's a something I think uh, Brian Alexander and Clay Connery talked about on, on the working cows podcast or, or maybe ranching reboot in a, in a past one, but it's, it's really interesting. And just this idea of a cow that it just mimics nature. And then, um, it sounds like that's what you're trying to do. That's, you know, that's what we're trying well, to do as well. That's exactly as... what we're trying to do. And, and in yeah. our mindset, the only things that I really want to, um, potentially steer the animals towards is a good temperament. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we breed animals with such a good temperament, they become bad mothers, can't look after themselves. So we're mindful of that, but we just, uh, we don't want aggressive animals because, you know, yeah. we have to work with them. Yeah. And then um, over time, improving meat quality to uh, ours and our community's palate. 
But for mm-hmm. me, meat quality, and and this is probably you know a sacrilege thing to say, but the <laughs> the meat quality is probably last, the last thing I consider because everyone first says to me with the inguni, like to I I, I can um. I can straw man the ingunis as being a good choice for a ranching operation very quickly. I understand everything that's wrong with them. They've got horns. Well, there is pole <laughs> genetics, but not many. But they've got horns, heaps of different colors. Yeah. Um, and then the meat isn't like a super marbled, well-finished meat, like a, mm-hmm. you know, like you might get out of certain prime Angus or Wagyu or whatever you whatever you like. But for me, like my consumers are buying things because of welfare, environmental impact, um, nu- nutrient density. Mm-hmm. you know making good food product and i believe that we can make and i'm proving i believe i'm proving that you can make a really good tasting cut yeah. of meat with with things running parallel to genetics like genetics can obviously help mm-hmm. but if you've got a diverse pasture and health healthy soils and low stress stock handling and a low stress abattoir and then butchers who let the beast hang for two weeks and mature in the cool room and take its time you know, mm-hmm. I think that they're going to outperform whatever small letdown you might have by an African genetic base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess I've always felt, and it's different when you're in a direct market from a commodity market and stuff too. It's it's a conversation I've heard people talk about when you when you know, Faro Cattle Company and us were breeding low input cattle, cattle that thrive in the environment, not necessarily the the high carcass trait cattle or the high production trait cattle, and and first incorrect statement that I think they make is when they say that we can't produce a quality product. I think you're right. And we are doing it as well, that we can produce a quality product with a low input animal. There's no doubt about that. We have customers that love what we produce. And so that's not really an issue. But the other thing that kind of just frustrates me when they talk about this kind of production model, to your point, they have their problems, but they, the market doesn't really pay a premium enough to justify having an animal that has all these other traits that come with higher feed costs and higher expenses. I mean, if you can run your cattle so much more affordably, so much cheaper, you can run more per acre, the profit, the market is not discounting them enough to justify, you know, switching to another breed essentially, or they're not paying a premium to the producers, the cow calf guys to justify, uh, uh, you know, breeding high input, you know, what some people call diesel bulls, the high cost cattle. And so it's, it's interesting. I mean, if you can find a, a breed that works well for you in your environment that you can run at a low input, you know, low cost program, especially if you can you know, direct market and still get the full premium, but even on a commodity market, if you can, you're not getting the premium, but you can do it so much cheaper than the, the competitors go for it. Absolutely. And it comes down to marketing and messaging. You know, if I've got an animal that is in a higher welfare herd purely because of their robust nature, you know, they're, they're less issues and their environmental impacts uh, better because they're eating less for maintenance. Like I can run three inguni cows to one shorthorn cow on my farm. That's the yeah. size difference and the and the food efficiency difference. The, the consumers need to know these things. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can communicate these. And this is why we're going to be getting into um, food nutritional paneling soon so we can go you know what that store store bought cut of meat there is 20 percent cheaper than ours but you've got to eat 40 percent of it more to get the same amount of um, x mineral and x vitamin compared to what ours has inside of it and mm-hmm. i think that that's a market that people are there's a lot of consumers that that's starting to make a lot of sense to them in yeah jared do you have any thoughts about if i can turn to um interviewer for a moment <laughs> sure do you have any personal thoughts on the uh animals utility for intramuscular fat 
marbling because everyone loves a, a, you know the eye candy of a of a mm-hmm. um, wagyu cut of meat and then you've got producers um, showing off and bragging and i do this all over my social media show off well marbled cuts when i do them but it's like yeah. look at this this is yeah. just a red angus and it's it's look at all the marbling and it's grass fed and grass finished mm-hmm. but from my understanding on a very basic level intramuscular fat um, is really a uh, can be a sign of muscle deterioration really like shouldn't muscle shouldn't fat be insulating and stored under the skin like i you look at wagyus in feedlots and the things can barely walk like yeah. it's not it's 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 not a um i don't know I, i'm just curious as to whether there's any information out there as to if that's a healthier cut of meat to eat maybe the leaner cuts of meat are actually better for us yeah, uh, it's an interesting question that I can't. I'll I'll be honest. I don't have the nutritional expertise to talk on it. I know I've, I I hear people talk about that the the fat is where a lot of the healthy nutrients are stored. So I've always I guess I've from my perspective have always thought that fat is good, especially fat on a grass developed animal that that has some additional benefits. But Absolutely. I would consider myself the nutritional expert to say that lean, fully lean meat is healthier than something different specifically, but I do think <laughs> that, that, the you know, the push for uh, why, why goo I've, I've only had on one occasion, my wife has had it more and stuff to it. To me, it's not even that enjoyable. I like the meat, uh, the not, I like the meat to taste like meat, not like butter, I guess. So it's kind of a, uh, preference yes. thing too, but everybody has their preferences. Yeah, I, I agree. Guess. Like fat, fat's obviously an amazing and important thing to consume, but it's interesting when you start looking at data of um the quality of the meat and you start comparing it to wild game deer Mm. and elk and uh Mm -hmm. things like that and how impressively nutrient dense and you've got these animals and what are deer and elk like they're lean meats and they've got very diverse oh that's exactly what what i was gonna say anyway think about what a deer or or something is out consuming they have this they have no fences and no food put in front of them i'm sure they have an incredibly diverse uh, you know, pal or uh, food consumption and stuff that that you can never, almost never, even in a grazing system, unless it's you know extremely diverse, you can never, you can't mimic uh, in in most replanted, improved pastures the diversity that a wild game animal can can harvest. I'm sure for themselves. And the book Nourishment, I mean, I read part of it, and now I'm listening to the audio book. Uh, but the book Nourishment on Fred Provenza uh, from Fred Provenza talks a lot about you know, animals ability to select and pick and choose the perfect ration they need when given the opportunity. And I think that's something that is, you know, opportunity that only, you know, well-managed long-term diverse pastures that we can get. And I, and I'm excited for this whole thing of nutrient density, because if we can get, if we can get the tools to show, you know, the difference between two cuts of meat at a store and one cut of meat has more nutrient density and the, and the consumer can see that that is an instant game changer for the entire beef or meat industry. So. Of course. Yeah. That's one of the reasons we run a free choice mineral trailer mm-hmm. with our cattle. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very interesting watching their intake fluctuate throughout the year. Yeah. It's very fun. Yeah. Oh, that is cool. Um, man, I feel like I, talk about uh talk about a bunch more things uh but i have to hop off here soon and and so we may have to have another conversation someday but i want to uh before i let you go and ask you two questions first of all where can people go to find you to learn more about what you're doing 
Yeah, sure. Well, my Twitter handle is Jake Wolke. I'm quite active there at the moment because it seems to be where the people are. Uh, our website's wolkefarm.com.au and yeah, Wolke Farm on all your socials. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. And then the last question is just what's a couple of resources that have been important? I mean, both, you know, not just in agriculture specifically, you've got a wealth of business experience, any resources on the business side or that have been important while you, you've kind of built up the production egg side that you would recommend people check out? Yeah, absolutely. So the two best business books I think I've ever read and in terms of self-development, the first one's called Fire Someone Today by Bob Pritchett. And I had a pretty toxic culture in the store at the time I read that. We're going back about eight years and I had a good manager come on board and teach me a lot. I learned a lot from him in terms of people management. Uh, what I learned from him is they want to be managed. I was sort of letting everyone get away with everything to make them all happy. And everyone resented mm-hmm. the uh, laissez-faire freedom nature of the enterprise. Uh, but this book is basically outlining that if someone's not performing, they're probably not happy. So liberate them and let them go be happy somewhere else. And since I've read it, I haven't sacked someone because it because <laughs> it changes your paradigm in the way you manage people. Yeah. Uh, the other book that I think is exceptional for people management is called Five Love Languages. It mm-hmm. teaches people manage others the way that they want to be managed so i love i love a pat on the back good job jake that was good work today done you give other people a pat on the back but they actually want uh quality time or they want um a a gift or or they want an act of service you know there's the five to physical touch they want five different love languages that people have uh and understanding that you need to manage everybody to maximize uh their satisfaction and output and you have to manage them as individuals that was also very liberating for me Mm-hmm. Uh, and I loved all the self-help books, you know, the the, the richest man in Babylon and yes. how to win friends and influence people. And uh, I've read them all, and, you know, I, I, I general patterns, principles and all these great books. They're all a bit of a book bookworm mm-hmm. in terms of the farming thing. You know, I'm sure everyone listening, listening has uh, decades and, and generational knowledge and experience over me. But I really drank the Joel Salatin Kool-Aid and still do. Uh, absolutely uh, love what that man's achieved. And obviously, Alan Savory, huge impact. And I'm reading a book at the moment called Deep Nutrition, which is, I've just ordered the book that you mentioned, uh, but Deep Nutrition is by Dr. Catherine, someone, I can't remember her name. And even though I feel like I'm, I'm more, I already know all this stuff, it's just been another paradigm change for me because talking about epigenetic health and um, the generational genetic lottery that you can pass on to your progeny by really looking after yourself with your with your inputs and it's, it's changed my life it's been very fun oh that's awesome those are some great resources i appreciate that a few that i've never heard so that that's perfect i love it's always fun to see what ones people continuously come back to but when you hear a new one too that's that's awesome so i appreciate it well you're gonna um, have to read them and then i'll get online and we'll do a book review together perfect yeah yeah i uh, i'm slow to uh, if there are there are there audiobooks on some of these? Cause it seems like that's the only way Probably. I can get a book read quick these days. So <laughs> I, uh, but I, I really appreciate you coming on today, Jake, and, and for making the time um, and, uh, and sharing everything that you're doing. That was, that was a really good conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah. Look, it's been an honor for me, Jared. Appreciate uh, your time and letting me get involved in my ramblings. And I hope some people can get some value out of it. The herd quitter podcast is brought to you by Pharaoh cattle company. His mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. 
And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.